you think you know everything or you think you're aware of what's happening in a certain milieu of uh, the musical confluence of our history and then you realize that there's just so much more to the entire equation and it happened again uh, recently um, at the uh, at a nonprofit that I work at uh, a record came in a uh, very mercurial record on Bay Records from 1979 and uh, you know it, it was it was an, it's an interesting album in that it uh, it exudes uh, an electric it's sort of a fusion of electric and acoustic instrumentation but these cats are not purists in any way or they're not snobbists in any way and they're telling great stories and they're burning it up with the trap set and I just sort of was like well these are some bad cats but as I often do I searched uh, Facebook and and you know plugged in some of these cats names to see if any of them were still around and sure enough my next guest pops right up and then doing my research it just blew my mind that this guy was right in the heart and the bastion of the folk movement, uh, even dozen jug band, Jim Queskin jug band, and uh, Dave Van Ronk, and Eric Von Schmidt, and Tom Rush, and made just incredible albums on prestige folklore, and has done a lot of writing in his own right um, about music and its significance to our culture. Mitch Greenhill, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. Uh, it's, it's good to hear that. Uh, interesting, the, the way you got in there. Um, I've always uh, been fond of that uh, Storm Coming album on, on Bay Records. And, Dude, uh, it's the freaking best, man. I really, you know, and I, I just, I, I know, I, this, my first question for you was, uh, the first time that you played with a, uh, with a trap drummer or a drum kit? Mm. No, when was that? <laughs> well, because, I mean, Bill Lee, the legendary Bill Lee, Spike Lee's father, was on one of your first albums, but I wasn't seeing any rhythm accompaniment with that. No, the, uh, oh, I think Jeff Mulder might have played a little washboard on something or other. Right. Um, but let's see, I, uh, when I moved to California, first time was 67, 68 or something like that, I did a couple of singles for... Uh, one of the Mercury Records offshoots. One of them was um, the song uh, There Ain't No Instant Replay in the Football Game of Life, part of my series on, on time. And That's uh, one of the greatest uh, things I've... I mean, hold on for a second. That, so that, that was the original... Even though that you recorded that on the uh, Storm Coming album, that, the original demo was from 67, 68. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was actually released and you know, got a little airplay. Um... Oh, and then actually, I did another single. Now that I'm thinking about it, for Mercury, I don't know if it ever did get released. Uh, called um, "Foggy Tuesday," and the great uh, Jim Gordon was on that session. Wait, what, dude? This uh, is insane. You tell me it was like on Smash or something. I'm trying to think about the subsidiary. Yeah, Smash it was is what it was. Actually. Unbelievable. So, so I mean, so but I mean that was in the. It's fair to say that prior to that, in I guess maybe the the basic question is, were you where did you come down on having drums in folk music early on, especially in that mid '60s period? Well, I mean, you know, I was at Newport when Dylan famously went electric, uh, and um, I was kind of buddies with uh, John Sebastian and the 
love and spoonful. So, I mean, it wasn't all that, it seemed like a natural progression in a sense. I mean, I've, I've always been kind of amused that uh, in certain purist circles, the electric bass is considered an acoustic instrument, but the trap drum isn't. Right. It's, it's kind of illogical. But um, when I got to California, I was certainly interested in getting into a band that was kind of where the culture was. I um, I was on a street in San Francisco one day, and I ran into Mark Spolstra, whom I knew a little bit from. Wow. Actually, we had been next-door neighbors, now that I think about it, back in Cambridge. And Mark was working on an album for Columbia, which he was having trouble with, so he invited me down to help him out. So I did the arranging on that album called The Hobo Poet, and um, there was a, a good studio drummer on that whose name I've, I've forgotten. And then when Mark and I, when the record got released, Mark and I started gigging to support it. That's when we brought in Maine Smith, who's my partner on the Storm Coming album that you referenced. And for a while, we were working as an acoustic trio. And then eventually we, we you know, acquired bass and drums. I think our first drummer played uh, garbage can lid. With <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life, dude. Unbelievable. So, but I mean, going back to, uh, I'm just trying to look here. Uh, well, first of all, uh, was it Roy Blumenfeld that played drums? Or maybe James, Jim Gordon's listed on this, uh, this hobo, this hobo uh, album. Jim Gordon's played the hobo album? I, I don't think I was, I, but Blumenfeld actually is, rings a bell. I think if Gordon was doing it, he I would have remembered that. I think he was probably working on it before I got involved right he's an amazing session drummer when the one session i do remember with him he he kind of took what i thought was a complete arrangement already and just by the way he structured his drum part he made it a better arrangement it was, it was pretty astonishing stuff is there a way for you to go a little bit deeper on that I, I i find that drummers from that period and i don't care if they were like you know skiffle drummers you know people would say that uh cats like you know, Billy Kreutzmann from the dead, you know, they weren't like polished drummers, but they created these multiple parts, not even studio, but a lot of times the, the drums just took on an added significance of part. It was really part of the ensemble, which is, you know, today, you know, and, you know, it's like, oh, the drummer has to hold it down. And I fundamentally believe, and I just want to get your opinion on this, is just the idea that when you were coming up, regardless of whether you played with the drummer or not, Everybody was supposed to have their own time feel. People were supposed to keep time for themselves, and that would allow the rhythm section to be freed up and play melodically. And that's more of a jazz aesthetic, but that's not what is happening, unfortunately, in a, in a more conformist music world today. So I just would love you to talk a little bit about uh, what Jim Gordon did to enhance uh, the arrangement. Well... First, let me just say that, you know, if you're an ensemble, everybody should be playing in time, no matter if they're playing the glockenspiel or the, or the drums. Um, and yes, there is, we want to kind of um, have, the, have the same sense of time. You know, these New Orleans drummers are famous for playing just a little bit behind the center of the beat. I mean, in a sense, you can get philosophical and say, is the center of the beat even possible to find? You're always going to be a fraction one way or the other. That's right. 
Um, in Jim's case, I mean, I, I haven't listened to this cut in a while, but the way I remember it is um, there was a bridge, I think, and Jim chose to play the bridge in halftime. You know, so he was, he was going along, ducka, chucka, ducka, chucka. And then when the bridge came, he went, ducka, ducka, chucka, ducka, 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 chucka, ducka. And um, that just kind of, we all kind of got with that, uh, the rest of the band. And uh, it, it, it created a shape to the arrangement that it hadn't had before. You know, kind of coincidentally, I was just uh, last weekend or the weekend before last, I was playing at uh, Merlefest in, in North Carolina. Yeah. And um, we did a. I was asked to to do a song on the uh, on a session called uh, the Doc Watson Hundredth Birthday Jam. The Kruger Brothers um, hosted, and so you know, we basically had we ran through the thing once. And I don't think all the players even were there the first time we ran through. But basically, I said I like to start it off, you know, a little free or an opener, and then build it up in the middle, and then. Towards the end, again, have it a little bit free or open. I, I can't remember if those are the terms I used. But the way uh, a number of the guys uh, interpreted that, including bass player T. Michael Coleman, um, was to play halftime at, at the at the beginning and at the end. And it just gave the, the shape. It gave it a shape, gave it a kick. It made... It made uh, it let me as a singer be explore some corners of it. I... I hadn't before that moment, um, you know. It's kind of, you know, that's. I guess that's the best I can come up. I, with. I think you did. That, that's fantastic. I also think that it's cool that, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of micromanaging. I mean, it, it with the Gordon part, it felt good, and you left it in, uh, and it, and it made the, it enhanced the song. Uh, and it, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, necessarily uh, ego involved. You know, were you? Uh, can you talk about like before you got into uh to cut your first record in 64 I mean you know Dave Gard uh you know the Kingston Trio uh were you somebody that was getting off on some of the R&B like the Hank Ballard and the Midnighters where was your musical bag and were you uh what, 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 were you were you inspired by by some of the music coming out of the early '60s, specifically like, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, Bill Evans's Vanguard Trio with Motion and Scotty LaFaro? I mean, that was acoustic, conversational jazz, and I just well, I I didn't know those guys then. Um, I guess let's see. Let me give me a. I'll give you a quick rundown. Of course, Please. when I was a kid, I took piano lessons. Uh, kind of didn't really it that much but it was something you did and then rock and roll hit me when i when i was about 10 or 11 and i think the first record i bought was uh, hound dog and don't be cruel elvis, elvis presley and fortuitously or not you know when i was 13 years old my dad decided he wanted to present pete Seeger in concert and uh, which was kind of a risky thing to do then. Pete was under a blacklist and there were threats. My dad actually got approached by uh, the FBI on his way to work one day wow. asking why he was presenting this commie. Um, but the, the scene was so much more casual in those days. Pete didn't stay at a hotel. Pete and, and the great harmonica player, Sonny Terry, who was working with him, stayed at our place. 
And to a 13-year-old kid, um, you know, rock and roll was was a little bit on a fallow side at that point. I think Elvis was either in the army or in Vegas. It was things were different. Sure. Uh, so I was kind of swept away by the energy of, of Pete. And then when my dad started um, managing Joan Baez and uh, Reverend Gary Davis, Reverend Davis stayed at our house for days on end. And he was, uh, being a blind man, he didn't want to let that guitar out of his big mitts. So he would just stay on the couch playing one amazing piece of guitar music after another. And so that kind of, uh, that's what, Took, that's what took my uh, my attention. I guess you mentioned jazz. So I should also mention I had a surrogate uncle named Steve Gardner in New York who used to be the stage manager of the Village Vanguard. So when I was very young, I did I did hear Miles Davis in that uh, in his classic years with Coltrane and and. Uh, Are you Elton. kidding me? Do how old were you when that was going down? I was must have been like eight or nine. Or oh my like god! That. So I mean, it's funny because I mean, I'm sure you must know Chuck Israels, the bass player. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we did a couple of cosmic interviews, and he's talking about Seeger. He was ten years old up in Massachusetts, and they're sitting around the porch just having a jam session. And in in '59, Israels is recording with Seeger, or '58, recording with Seeger and. John Coltrane, and it just, you know, and it's like, and he was also playing with Joan Baez at Club 47, I think it was. Um, You? That I'm not so sure about, although, you know, he might have been part, you know, when Joan started 47, 47 was basically a jazz room. Uh, Her Pomeroy's band would play there, including a very young Tony Williams. Oh, wait, 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 wait. That's right, so... Because Pomeroy had the sickest band at Berkeley, I cannot believe Tony Williams was playing the Club Forty Seven. Yeah, and uh, Sam Rivers. Of course, of course. No, I, this is right in the pocket. This is unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I want to re- I want to read you this. This is you're going to dig this. Uh, <clears throat> one thing. I, this is from Chuck Israels. He said, "One thing I can tell you is that I was in Europe playing with Bud Powell and came back to Boston in '61." And the Mount Auburn 47, where I had been playing in a trio with Steve Kuhn and Arnie Wise, had become a folk club. There was this beautiful young woman playing guitar and singing. She sang so well, and she played the guitar so well, and she was such a beautiful storyteller in her singing, and drop-dead gorgeous and super smart that I got up there and played the bass with her because it was the most musical thing available to me. I never got paid for that. I just played with her. That woman was Joan Baez. Uh, that's interesting. I you know, I spent a lot of time at the forty seven in those years, and I I don't remember Israel, but um, well, no, clearly this was a one off kind of thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, but so, what happened with the, the forty seven? I don't know. Maybe it was open six nights a week, and um, four of them were jazz, and then one night a week was Baez, and another night of the week was Eric von Schmidt, and uh, gradually the folk music turned out to be popular with the young crowd and you know i was right in the middle of harvard college absolutely um and you know especially jones stuff there people would line up around the block so eventually it it became mostly folk music it was a wonderful uh, wonderful place to to learn music i especially miss the um and this is we lost this when i moved to harvard square it used to have a basement that was as big as the entire upstairs room and 
that's where a lot of ideas just got um, swapped. And that's where I learned a lot in, in the basement of Club 47. Can, can, so can you talk about a, sp- a specific uh, swapping that, uh, you know, an idea that has has stayed with you for your whole career? Well, I opened a couple of shows with, um, shared the bill with uh, Tim Harden. And, you know, that was, he was oh, man. Pretty- you know, he had a wonderful, he had an art, really an R&B approach to, to acoustic music and to folk music. And that was kind of, uh, there was a lot of just, you know, have, getting permission to to uh, explore things. I get a, it, yeah, right. A place where it was, you know, it's one of the differences between the Boston scene and the New York scene was that in New York, if you were playing, uh, I don't know, the, the Village Gate or the... Um, uh, what's the one that was downstairs in McDougal Street? I blanked it out. Um, oh, uh, Gertie's Folk City or something? Not Gertie's. Uh, the place that Sam Hood had in, in Clarence Hood. Um, It'll uh, come. It, 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 uh, the Gaslight? No. The, the Gaslight, yes, thank you. Oh, my uh, God. Dude, you're just... This playing is, the Gaslight, yeah. as I did, I opened for Jesse Fuller for a couple of weeks there. Wow. You're always kind of thinking, who's in the audience? God, it might be somebody really important. It might be somebody from CBS or uh, Columbia Records or whatever. But if you were playing the Club 47 in Cambridge, um, not too likely, you know. Uh, it's every now and you know, maybe Sam Chartism would show up, which is how I got my first prestige uh, record deal, wow. but it was all, it was kind of on a, it was, it was okay to make mistakes, you know, so people would try things. Um, I, I backed up Eric von Schmidt or, and or Ralph Kahn a number of times there, just kind of playing whatever came into my head. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a freedom to that. It's, it's fun. over the years. I've, I've run across a few places like that with my, uh, in my, California Northern Rock and Roll days. Uh, there was a place called Uncle Sam's in Sebastopol, California, where I felt that that kind of freedom. And and when I started um, composing some music for theater, the Mark Taper Forum had a lab under the John Anson Ford Theater, where you know, think a couple of they'd try out ideas that might make it to the main stage eventually. A couple did, and a number of them did. Um, and that was another place where where I was learning how to be a sound designer and, and write for theater. It's kind of it's kind of rare, and uh, uh, I kind of miss them. Well, I mean, this is you're pretty profound. Uh, you know, I, I so I, I want to go back because I, I the Boston scene there were more. It was uh, it was not as uh, puritanical as New York. I mean, only because I my fifth book just came out and. Uh, and in my interview with Yorma Kalkinen was in it, and he talked about, uh, you know, he was obsessed with the Reverend Gary Davis, but he didn't necessarily play like him. And, and, and it was like there was a pecking order. He said, uh, I was present in the New York folk scene, but I was a complete non-entity. I was there in the era of No Direction Home, Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home, fresh out of Ohio. I was hanging out with Ian Buchanan one day, and he went, Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm going over to I'm going over to Dave Van Ronk's house to play poker. <clears throat> Would you like to come? I said, of course I'd like to come. He told me that's fine, but you have to sit in the corner and not say a word. That's what I did. And you know, and like and like it was like 
know your place or even you were judged if you weren't playing it stylistically the exact same way. And I just wonder if, if, if that you had a, more freedom in Cambridge and Boston, if that was the difference between those two scenes. Well, actually, I might see it kind of the opposite. Uh, <laughs> right on. In, in, uh, in Cambridge, we, we tended to be a little snooty about, pure, about being pure um, and, and you know, having the, um, I don't know, the arcane information, the secret information, the secret sauce. Um, the, the Van Rock story doesn't comport at all with, with my, uh, experience with Dave. I always found Dave very encouraging and, and, uh, very, uh, open to, uh, to new people and to new ideas. The, uh, the, the poker game does ring a bell, you know, <laughs> I, I, as, uh, I think I might've told this story in my book. Um, the Dave used to, uh, to be the host of the open mic nights, the hoop nights at the Gaslight. And uh, so that would take place. The Gaslight was on a, in, this, in the cellar level of this, of this building on McDougal Street. On the ground level was the bar, the Kettle of Fish, which was the uh, scene of some very, uh, you know, kind of um, arguments, uh, <laughs> political arguments and musical arguments that, that were very heated it became a blood sport of sorts jeez and uh you know i was some very smart people with dylan and albert grossman and phil oaks people who were you know that that i found intimidating and uh just as far as the intellectual the intellectual jousting kind of thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean if you had a point if you expressed a point of view in that crowd you better you better be able to back it up. <laughs> that was the kettle of fish, and then there were that. Was, yeah. Then, then this on the second floor was the poker game, and Dave would when he was when he was hosting the open mic nights, he was also running this poker game or participating in his poker game, and you know, you, the the word was that when he had a bad head, he would say, "Oh, you had to go downstairs and introduce somebody at the on the hoop, on the hoot night." And then on the third floor is where he and Terry Thal lived. It was kind of a, wow. a whole little ecosystem of their own there. Um. So, you're te- you when was the so Sam Charters? Uh, when did he first lay eyes on you? How did that come about? Yeah, I think I said it was the forty-seven. But now that I think about it, I was playing a gig at in Brandeis. Brandeis had a coffee house, a musical coffee house called Chumley's. And I, I'm, I'm sure I must have known Sam was there. And, you know, I kind of treated it as an audition, I guess. And uh, I guess I played pretty well that night and uh, didn't embarrass myself. And he, actually, I think he spent the night at my place and, uh, and you know, he offered me a, a record and I, I think I wound up spending spending the night at, at his place when I was recording. It was just so uh, informal back in those days. Um, and went went down to New York to to make the recording. Um, and that's the one that you mentioned. Bill Lee is on. I think it's just me and Bill, right? Yeah, uh, I think Moldauer plays something on there too. I got to okay. look that. But no, I'm. I, I, there yeah, there was a second album in which Jeff and Fritz Richmond. Um, played with and Jeff Gutchin, the piano player who I was working with, and all played. That was that. That's an instrumental album 
Oh. That's the one I need to get my hands on, man. That it, it, all instrumental. Um, what's interesting though is, did you go to? I just because I've never got a copy of that that first album with Bill. Did you record that at uh, Rudy Van Gelder's studio? No, I, I would remember that. I, I think no, but I mean it was on Prestige. That's all the only reason I ask, you know. Oh right. Yeah. No, it was someplace in Midtown. I I can't remember where it was. The um, the two those two Prestige albums um, were subsequently released on Fantasy as a twofer. Um, beautiful. And I'll be beautiful. Happy to send you, it's a CD. I'll be happy to send you a copy. Oh, thank you, man. Sure. Appreciate your interest. Well, no, I, you know what I'm curious about? I, again, not having uh, a trap set, I was, I, maybe this, I would love you to talk about how, especially the first session, uh, how it was mic'd. Like, did they just drop a mic in the middle of the room? Um, you know, to me. Are you talking about the Storm Coming album? Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the first Prestige album. Oh. No, I hardly paid attention to that. <laughs> you know, I figured that was. Hang on a second, let me. Sure. Um, I figured that was, you know, was somebody else's problem. Although I remember, by the second one, uh, I do remember spending some time uh, getting the 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 sound of Fritz Richmond's washtub bass right, and and being kind of proud of it once it got sounding good. That's the first time I can remember you know, being aware of the difference between recorded sound and, and live sound. I was just basically interested in playing. What was the, what was, before that, what was your concept of recorded versus live sound? Well, let's see, there was a guy, I think it was Dick Fassett, who had a studio in his home where, uh, I guess I did, uh, I accompanied a woman named Sylvia Mars there. You know, I just, no, I was really just oblivious to it. Somebody else, somebody else. No, I appreciate mind. your honesty because it's all, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, born in 78, it, to me, like, this is all a fantasy. Like, I have these, you know, like, it was so innocent. It was so informal. Uh, and, like, there wasn't a lot of instruments. You didn't necessarily have to worry about leakage or anything like that. But it was just. Well, leakage was, was kind of part of it, you know. I mean, you, it's not that you wouldn't worry about it, but, I mean, that's. I think that you hear that stuff in the Van Gelder recordings as well, the stuff that's recorded live. I did. I, I produced an album for Rosalie Sorrell's, um, it must be close to 20 years ago now, called Borderline Heart, um, in which we basically set out to do that. We, we, we were in a fairly big room. That, that's one of the problems these days. The studios are so have become so tiny. Yep. Um, and, you know, the idea was... Leakage is part of the sound, you know. There's going to be some leakage on the vocals. Going to be not that we didn't do some some overdubs and some repairing, but the the basic ensemble sound was the idea was not to have a, a huge amount of separation. You know, the uh, I mean, these days they'll put what eight or nine mics on the drums alone. It drives me nuts, dude. The, you 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 suck all the soul. There's no, there's no room to, for, there's no breathe, there's no breath in the music. I mean, that's a whole other, uh, you know, tangent that bothers me greatly. And it's just because before you look at the great producers, uh, Glenn Johns or whoever these, I mean, I mean, you have one, one mic on the kick drum and maybe one left 
overhead and one right overhead mic, and and that was it. I mean, the drums just could. This is those Keith Moon albums, or I mean, right. it just it just breathes. And I guess the techno. I mean, were you somebody who? When do you think you sort of? You know, Jim Keltner, who's a dear friend, I've done a bunch of interviews with him. I mean, he openly admits being a jazz snob in the 60s. That's all he wanted to play. He just wanted to be Philly Joe Jones. He was starving to death. But, you know, eventually he started a family and had to go into the studios. But there was a period of time where he was, it was just, it had to be the pinnacle of that of that music that we've been talking about, that, that burning jazz yeah. music. And, like, did you... When you moved out to California, I'm just curious about when you kind of, I don't want to say surrendered, but just sort of opened up to things that maybe you were a bit snobby about in your earlier years in, in Cambridge. Yeah, well, actually, I remember when I was very young and the, the Weavers put out an album and Fred Hellman had brought a trumpet player in to play on one of the tunes, and it was like, <laughs> what? What is that? <laughs> um, by the time, when I did that, uh, the instant replay single for Smash, I guess it was, um, that's when I started paying attention to the studio and what could go on in there and, and enjoying it and thinking I could, uh, you know, that I could I could do good work in it. You know, it's, it's I guess you're interested in the drums, so I'll tell the story about how those drum tracks happened on um, on Storm coming out. Please, man, because I, dude, this cat Scott Matthews is killing it on there. Oh, he's he's great. You know, I think I he was he was Jenny Muldor's boyfriend at the time, and I think he had worked on a Jeff Muldor album. That's how I think I got no, to know him. This is so classic, my God. And um, but this was you know the the Storm coming album happened. It was. Mid- was took a long time. We, I think we must spend eight or nine months on the thing. And the first thing we did was Scott. I mean, basically it was Scott and I think Stuart Brotman might have been playing some bass, but I think eventually I, I Stuart was an upright player, and I think eventually I uh, redid most of his parts on electric. Yeah, you're right. He's, it says double bass, Brotman, electric bass, Mitch. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so I, basically we sang... The whole we sang all the songs, vocal, um, a guitar part, the rhythm guitar part that would eventually get wiped out, and Scott basically. So Scott's parts, which I think are just wonderful, um, were basically, or maybe we built an album around Scott's parts. Now that I think about yeah, it. I'm wondering if you just laid down the rhythm tracks. I mean, regardless of when you added the electric bass, I mean. That wouldn't yeah. have been inconceivable to lay down the rhythm first. Well, that was it, you know. And we, the idea was that if the if the rhythm tracks are happening, we're on the right track. I mean, and yeah, no. Wonderful. So, uh, but I'm not going to let you get away because uh, you know this is just like you, you get out, uh, you make those 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 demos or those forty fives for Smash. Um, now, what you were in San Francisco, where, what were you, what else, what, what kind of bands were you in, especially like in the early 70s? I mean, you know, this record is 79, and one reason it has an old school, I mean, the whole thing is just like a total throwback, 
record. So I'm like, these guys are definitely in a time warp. And yet there's not a lot of information about what you did in the early 70s. And I'd love you to talk about some of the bands you were in. Uh, at well, that... the, um, the, the, um, the, the, the partnership with Maine Smith grew out of a band that we were in called The Frontier. And wow. I've already... The Frontier never actually released an album, although we did record, uh, we did back up Rosalie Sorrells on her album, Traveling Lady. However, um, I, Maine and I, a few years ago, put together uh, various recordings, demos and live recordings of The Frontier, which is now available to a, a select group of people, and I'll be happy to... Yo, man, I need to hear that. Dude, that, The Frontier, man, how did that, when, where did you guys start... That started with the with the Mark Spolstra sessions. I, I mentioned that Mark, uh, you know, I worked with Mark on an album, and then um, time to to perform. Yeah, right. And then I think we went to even the Sky River Rock Festival at one time when I remember. Jay Don't gloss that. over that. Are you kidding me? That you is. Ins- that? Oh yeah, very well. No, well, well that was a that was a nutty thing. I, we we had picked up a a bass player. His name I won't mention. It was kind of ripped on acid through the entire weekend. It was, uh, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a glimpse of, uh, you know, that that I don't know West Coast culture, I guess, in a sense. I mean, it was it was like the, uh, it, it, you had the two different school. You had the, you know, the Leary Milbert, uh, 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 you know, the the sort of isolation acid tests, and then you had more the the sort of you know. Liquid acid in a bathtub on the West Coast, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, Mark and and May and I worked for a while as a trio, and and uh, matter of fact, the earliest recordings we did was in Michael Cogan's living room. Michael Cogan was Bay Records; and he engineered that album. He, he left us last year. Oh man, I'm looking at you, Mike Cogan, right there. And uh, so eventually, we got a picked up a bass player we all moved to sonoma county north of san francisco and the idea was to do a band that based that was basically a local band a band that had a local following uh you know we played at places like the end of the beginning we did play in berkeley we played at the freight and salvage and mandrakes and- dude this is so badass first of all i'm looking at this rosalie sorrell's lee poundstone on electric bass uh Cat named Willow Scarlet. Oh, I think that's Will Scarlet on harmonica. I could be wrong about Will, it. Will Scar- yeah, Will Scarlet. Yeah, Will Scarlet. He was in Hot Tuna, speaking of Yorma. Uh, uh-huh. Maine Smith on Steel. Uh, Mitch Greenhill, Acoustic and Electric. And Michael Woodward on drums. Right. Well, that was the, the band we eventually wound up with. We started off with a different bass player and a drummer and eventually wound up with... Lee Poundstone, the the sage of the brush, who was uh, a Texas blues guy. He, had, you know, we, he he and I had a lot of you know a background in common. He had, including a, a relationship with Lightning Hopkins. Wow. And uh, and Woodward was a local guy from San Francisco. He's he Poundstone uh, died a few months ago. Woodward is is uh, hunkered down in uh, uh, Abilene, Texas. Oh right? my! Woodward is hunkering <laughs> down, man. That that, that, that dude. I mean, I've ne- he was a Bay Area guy, and I've never heard of that cat, man. Who's that? Well, I mean, I just I've, I know most of the the classic drummers that came out of the San Francisco area, and that name doesn't ring a bell. Man. I can't believe he's he's. Well, he's uh, he was uh, from Santa Rosa. He was uh, you know a, a Sonoma County guy. Sure. 
Um, and that's that's where we picked him up. And uh, but that was probably the first drummer that I had a you know a long relationship with. You know, we would we, we were very very uh, devoted to that band. If, you know, we we would be playing most weekends, and if we weren't playing, we'd be recording, uh, we'd be rehearsing on Wednesday and Thursday. I think Monday and Tuesday were our days off. But uh, you know, it was uh, for a period of three or four years, we uh, you know we were very very devoted to that band, and we had a a fan base that you know would come out for us. It was it was pretty grassroots. I remember there were gigs where we instead of taking uh, people's cash, we took their food stamps. <laughs> this is dude, and I love that you're living on the you know on the cheap in uh, in Sonoma County, which is just unheard of today. You know? Oh yeah. Well, I, I, I was once uh, offered a house in, in this town of Camp where I lived for, uh, I think it was $4,000. Oh, my God. Like that. And uh, I, I couldn't have, it, but it needed a new roof, so I, I had to pass. Did you, did you, so the Frontier, uh, it, was a, it was an electric group, is that fair to say? Uh, electric and acoustic. We never totally uh, got rid of our acoustic end. And sometimes we'd have gigs that really valued the acoustic thing. Like there was one time when we, um, when we, uh, did a, we were almost part of a course at the University of California, I guess. I think Sam Hinton had created the course, which was supposed to be about, uh, it was supposed to follow folk music from its uh, early days to contemporary times when we were the co- contemporary element. And we we leaned on the acoustic stuff at that time. I mean, it's it's a shame that uh, the technology wasn't up to what we were doing. It was always uh, a challenge to try to get the acoustic instruments over the electric bass and the drums. Nowadays, it's, uh, you know... Impossible, yeah. Um, so, uh, you were on par with, like, uh, were you playing, like, the New Orleans house? I mean, you mentioned Mandrakes, uh... We played, we played the New Orleans house, and, you know, plenty of times, yeah. As a matter of fact, it was, the, 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 when the band broke up, we had one more gig left at the New Orleans house. Maybe it wasn't our last gig, but it was one of our last gigs. And, uh, I can't remember the woman who was the proprietor, she had offered us a wedding gig for the Sunday or no, we were playing Friday, Saturday. The wedding gig was on Saturday afternoon and, uh, everybody in the band forgot about it <laughs> except me. I, I kind of woke up Saturday morning and said, Oh shit, where's the, uh, we have a wedding to do. And I couldn't, you know, nobody, nobody had a cell phone. I didn't know where anybody was. So I just kind of was pondering. I'm walking down Telegraph Avenue and I look and look up and there's Taj Mahal whom I knew oh. from my from Boston days. Matter of fact, when he was, he, he used to come around to see Jesse Fuller when when my dad was rep, was ripping Jesse. And uh, so I I lured him over there. Taj and I played the wedding. <laughs> that bad. is so freaking classic, dude. You know that dude, Billy Cobham, the drummer, told me that there were only two bands that would either that opened and or closed for the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Cats like Frank Zappa did not want to close after Mahavishnu. Like, people like that were very snob, they were very insecure about that. There were only two bands that opened and closed. One was Edgar Winter's White Trash, and the other, Solo, Dobro, Taj Mahal. 
singing story, telling stories. Oh Unbelievable. I, I mean, national, guitar, national steel guitar, I bet. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it, it, you can't really. So, you did you actually, did you have some momentum? I mean, it's funny because, not that I'm not comparing you to the fourth way, which was with Mike Knock and Ron McCore, Michael White, and you know, like, but you know, a lot of those guys, a lot of those cats wound up with getting record deals. I mean, you guys were, how close were, did you actually well, get? We, we actually got, got offered a record deal that we turned down. We were, we were kind of dumb, dumb country kids at the time. Um, I don't know what, uh, you know, I don't know why, why we didn't go farther. Maybe we weren't good enough or, you know, maybe we weren't smart enough, but, uh, we didn't, you know, we had our, our moment, uh, a few years there. And, uh, you know, actually we, we still, uh, when I go back to Sonoma County, I played a gig there last month. As a matter of fact, and oh, you did. It was like old times. It was a lot of the a lot of the old timers came back. Um, you know, one of the L's on my show is is leadership, and I just wanted you to talk about your father. You've mentioned a couple of times. What made him a great leader? Uh, I mean, I, I guess ultimately, like, why did so many of these luminary cats? feel loyalty to your father well um he was not he was honest for one thing and he uh was very devoted to their welfare one of the things that i uh miss about my dad is was his openness to uh he was the type of guy who you know felt that at any moment he'd meet somebody who was going to be going to provide an answer to a question he didn't even know he had <laughs> remember uh, i remember a few weeks before he died we were at the folk alliance gathering at a hotel in washington and i kind of wandered through the lobby and and there there was my dad already you know suffering from leukemia and kind of not you know having to have a couple of blood transfusions a week and he was there listening to this rather ordinary kind of look at your shoes bluegrass band, just uh, lapping it up as if uh, you know. Oh man, it was uh, it was worth his undivided attention, and uh, that's something I really admire and uh, and uh, wish that I could cultivate more myself. It's sort of like a it be be here now in the moment kind of thing, you know, regardless of what else is going on in your life. Yeah. Yeah. How did he wind up? I mean, the yeah. The idea was that it wasn't, um, I guess what I'm trying to get across is that it wasn't um, judgmental. Uh, it right. was more open. You know, it's not, he wouldn't listen to something and say, oh, well, that's not as good as such and such most of the time. But, yeah, that's uh, what I cannot say. It's always this competition thing. You know, it's like who's better? It's like it, 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 there, there is no better, you know? Which actually that reminds me of a story. Go ahead. You're, you're you're obviously interested in drummers. I, the automat. Uh, oh dear! Oh, I need to hear about this. Yeah, I know the automat. Yeah, in New York, you know, they used to have some music sessions. I I uh, I heard Pete Seeger there once, and once they had a drum uh, contest between Ginger Baker and Elvin Jones. Oh my God! It was pretty. pretty oh, funny. that's so classic. <laughs> Wait, you were there for that? Oh yeah, I went to this. <laughs> oh my god! The very both of them very flashy. I think Elvin, you know, kind of wore the flashier clothes. Uh, 
Baker was, did the flashier drum stuff. Yeah, I mean, Elvin was just like pure sheets of sound. Ginger was definitely more of like a flashy, you know, I'm not going to say he was a chops-driven dude, but yeah, I mean, that... Um, can you, I just, you know, for somebody like myself, I, 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 they are deep in my soul, even though I never met them, uh, guys like, uh, Mel Lyman and Fritz Richmond. And, you know, I'm looking at this Tom Rush record, I'm listening to it and it's just him and Fritz on a washtub bass. Like how prevalent was it that cats were like running around Cambridge and, or, you know, even New York with washtub bases like like that, that to me is just like the most surreal thing in the world was that quite there a weren't that many there weren't that many and actually in in our scene fritz was the bass player he, he was, was the, the he was player. the washtub cat that was it he was not only the washtub cat he was the bass player we didn't know any bass players <laughs> you know, i take it back every lily eventually showed up and, and could actually play a, an upright bass you know fritz has this story about how he got into the washtub bass when he was in the uh, army and um he somehow hooked up he was a very you know uh hands-on cat he would he fixed up my volkswagen band. right he was very hand could yeah. build things yeah Fix things. And, uh, so he put a wire on a big Quonset hut when he was in the army and started playing that, and uh, oh. fell in love with the sound. Um, so he, and I'm sorry, who was the upright player that uh, that eventually came into the? I, I missed that name. Everett, Everett Lilly. Are you familiar with the Lilly Brothers? Absolutely. Wait, is he still with us? Well, Everett is. Everett was a was B Lilly's son. Wow. Uh, wow. B, B and uh, and his brother are gone. Um, but that was a, a great little scene there. They had they used to play every night at the Hillbilly Ranch downtown, mostly for drunken sailors who were on leave in Boston Harbor. Um, Bill, matter of fact, Bill Keith, you know, was uh, I dude, I, you were, were, dude, the telepathy's insane because I was just going to ask you about my dear late friend Bill Keith, who used to play at that at that venue, Hillbilly Ranch. Well, Bill, when Bill was in college, he was. I mean, he was always a, a gifted banjo player, but he was learning the banjo, and one of the people he emulated was Don Stover, who played with the Lilly Brothers at Hillbilly Ranch. So, uh, and Bill, every weekend, would come to Boston. Amherst is, you know, like about 80, 90 miles away. Um, but during the during the week, he was, uh, you know, on his studies at Amherst. But in order to uh, help his banjo playing along, he would call up the Hillbilly Ranch, their, their payphone in the main room, <laughs> And ask for Bill Keith, and he said, he said the guy. Somebody would say, "Oh, I'll see if he's here." And leave the phone there and go look for Bill Keith for a few minutes. And that's the way Bill could hear a little of Don Stover's banjo playing. Oh my God, dude! He didn't tell me that. He did talk about Stover, um, dude. That man was was he playing pedal steel at that point too, or no? No. Well, he. At, I do remember his first pedal steel. He was so. See, I left Cambridge in '67. So, yeah, he, it was after he was not while he was in college. After he moved to Cambridge, and I think he was playing with the Jugman by then when he when he started working on pedal steel. I remember. Yeah, I remember one time he did a little show and tell at his place. But he had just gotten his pedal steel. He had learned a few licks, and Bruce Langhorn was in town for some reason or other. And uh, Bruce, you know, tried his hand at the thing. And he said, you know, 
I, I'm used to being able to sit down at a string instrument and make something happen, but no, this one is a little bit too complicated for me. Wow. Yeah. No, Duke Ellington lost his mind when he saw the Questkin Jug Band at, at the Troubadour and was just fascinated with the way Bill Keith uh, played that thing. I uh, Would you say that, uh, you know, so many of my friends now, if they're playing original music uh, in a band... Uh, the only way you're going to sing for your supper is by relentless road dogging and selling merchandise at the, at the gigs. You don't get paid for the gigs a lot. Um, hopefully you get a hotel. Um, and the long and the short of it is you got to be on the road for at least three weeks to a month in order to sell enough merchandise to actually take home some dough. Did you, were you ever, did you ever have a road dog experience in your life? Um, well, Frontier did go, did tour up and down the West Coast. You know, we would go as far as north as Seattle and far down as San Diego a few times. I think we usually crashed at people's houses, as I recall. Oh, and I remember, no, that's, remember once we had a gig up in the Sierras and we, we had a motel for us. I didn't go out for months at a time, like, like uh, you're talking. When Maine and I put out that, um, that Storm Coming album, we toured the East Coast. We played uh, The Bitter End and uh, The 47 and a few places back there. When I was on the road with Jackie Washington, we would do a, do some Midwest stuff. And the gigs were longer then. You'd go to uh, Detroit and play a couple of weeks, go to Philadelphia and play a couple of weeks. It wasn't like the, a bunch of, of one-nighters. And then Maine and I did a couple of... of tours of uh of britain and a few gigs in italy that were pretty pretty fun when was the jackie washington thing i that's that's that just kind of blew my mind there uh i was in jackie's band or jack landrone as he's now known oh she's pretty early on i mean like 63 62 um well let's you know the story <laughs> the story goes that uh, Jack and some of his friends from Roxbury, middle, all of them middle-class uh, Puerto Ricans yeah. dressed in suits and ties, heard that there was, um, that they heard about this folk music world and heard that there were uh, loose women there. Some of them didn't even wear brassiers. <laughs> so they went down to check it out at the Golden Vanity. And uh, they sat there, listened to music. They ordered some tea, which you know they're used to tea. They're used to uh, getting it for two bucks a gallon at the A and P. Right. It turns out this was Lapsang Souchong or stuff like that. Yeah, right, 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 right. So uh, when they when the bill came, they were a little mortified that they didn't have the money to cover it. But it turned out if you if you sang uh, there, you it was free. So Jack got up and he borrowed a guitar and he sang a few what he thought were what his family thought was folk songs um a couple of puerto rican songs some stuff from the islands maybe calypso stuff sure and my dad was in the audience and uh, you know jack has a, a way of commanding a room you know as uh, he's a charismatic performer which my dad recognized and you know so well this guy can uh you know play it if nothing else he'll play some school assemblies and bar mitzvahs and weddings and stuff like that. 
So he says, uh, you know, I'd like to work with you, but the one thing, uh, you got to do something about your guitar playing. And Jack says, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I never played a six-string guitar. I only played a ukulele. And so my dad says, don't worry, my, my son will teach you. And so at, uh, I guess I must have been 16, which would make it 1960. I found myself traipsing through Jack's, uh, the, the catacombs of the apartment house that Jack lived in in uh, the south end of Boston. And wow. That was the start of our relationship. And so, yeah, my 62, 63 sounds about right. That uh, at first it was Jack and me. We, I think, I can't remember Fritz Richmond was on the trip. I remember we played, no, it was just Jack and me. We went to Detroit and played a room called the Coffee Gallery for a couple of weeks, actually. And then I think it was me and Jack and Fritz Richmond went down to Philadelphia and played the second fret. Also for a couple of weeks. The um, second fret. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember know that one? I've never no because I haven't heard of that one. I the the one in Detroit. I was just uh, going back over my interview with the late Gordon Lightfoot, and he played there. Oh yeah, it was a, it was the place to play in a sense. It's um, Svevachtel. It's a Israeli guy. We, we thought that we thought that we spoke funny. We thought he spoke funny. <laughs> you and Richmond and Jack at the second fret in Philly for two weeks. I mean, that to me, you guys didn't break out a, a, an old. Uh, uh, you you didn't record your gigs, did you? No, who, who knew about that stuff? I did get my guitar down there, though. I had a, a Gibson L one that was my main squeeze for quite a few years. I still have it now. It's these days, I have a tune to a high-strung guitar. Um, and then, uh, you know, do you know Jerry Ricks? Does that name ring a bell to you? That, no, not, does not. Jerry is a wonderful blues player he, uh, who eventually moved to Europe, Austria, I think, and, and developed quite a following there. He was the, um, he was the dishwasher at the second fret. And I uh, wound up staying at his place for a while. And Doc used to stay with him, too, Doc Watson, when wow. he came to, the, to Philly. It was, uh, I don't know, it was, it was, I don't know, interesting time. I, if I knew it was important, I would have paid more attention. I know, man. But, you know, you, you, you know it, it's always like that. Um, one final question in set one for Mitch Greenhill. Just absolutely, uh, you know, one of my favorite interviews of the, of this calendar year. Uh, you know, I've interviewed enough. Chuck Israels is one, and there were other cats who um, idolized him and knew him. Uh, and he was vilified uh, for a lot of bogus reasons. But if there was one or a couple of things that Pete Seeger brought to the table that our society, civilization, desperately needs. Uh, not the, I don't need to hear about the the political bents or anything like that, but, I mean, people said he was, a, he, everyone to a man says he was a man of the people. And I just wonder, even though you weren't his peer, what are some things that are most needed by, uh, that Pete could offer to, uh, sentient beings today in order to keep us at least, uh, you know, above water for a, a little bit of time. So, you know, I, I, uh, 
I talk about, uh, I have a couple of Pete stories in my book. This book is called Raised by Musical Mavericks. And uh, wow. it's structured so, so that each chapter is a different year of my formative years, starting like when I was 13 or maybe even earlier. And, um, and each chapter introduces a, a musical mentor and a lesson learned. And the one on Pete, um, I, I mentioned that my dad was put him on a concert. He stayed at the house. Well, the afternoon of his concert, he's playing at Jordan Hall or Symphony Hall that night. He decides to take me ice skating. So, uh, and the, in Boston, you know, at least back then, was wasn't a rink, an ice skating rink. Basically, when the weather got cold, the fire department just opened with fire hydrant or maybe it wasn't even a fire department and just froze some low-lying oh the innocent times <laughs> so i just remember um remember ice skating behind pete and and uh i was never a very good skater and i was always a little bit too cold but pete was uh the things i remember is his balance he was such a balanced person Graceful on the skates. Uh, oh, I love this. And for a, for a minute, I I kind of overcame my awkwardness on the ice skates by just uh, trying to um, emulate his balance, his flow, the way he moved through the world. So I don't know if that's a direct answer to your No, it's perfect, man. It's absolutely, it's totally exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, the man just exuded like a Taoist quality of, of true grace, balance, and cultivation in his music and obviously in his ice skating as well. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mitch, let's let's be in touch, man. I, I'd love to do set two with you. Let this breathe for a minute. I'll, I'll send you my address, and I'd love to get in touch with a couple of cats if they're still around, like Maine, you know? Maine is still around. Matter of fact, he sat in with me at the gig that I did in Berkeley a few weeks ago. But he's... Uh, He's a few years older than me, and and he's slowing down quite a bit. So if you want to talk to me, better, better hit. I'll I'll, I'll get you. I'll get you a few cats. You know, but you, I cannot thank you enough for opening sure. a new portal into a musical realm. You know, like I said, I interviewed Queskin, Maria Grisman multiple times. He's a dear friend. Richard Green, Bill Keith. I thought I got to them all, and then all of a sudden I'm like, Mitch Greenhill on Prestige Folklore? Are you kidding me? Uh, anyway, it all started with Storm coming, man. So thank you so much for taking the time. I'm happy to. I'll be happy to send you the, the uh, CDs. Are, are you interested in the book as well? Absolutely, man. Okay, send me your address. Uh, appreciate your interest and uh, fun talking to you. All right, Mitch. Take it easy, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Right,